You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer Alex Diaz, welcome to the show this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you? I'm good. You got in here bright and early. It's it's, uh, it's swimming weather outside there. Yes, it was a bit of a trek to, to come in here because of the weather, as you said, but uh, fortunately... I left on time this morning. Yeah, the, the traffic, uh, yeah, and I was a little anxious about you getting here. No, uh, the, the traffic wasn't uh, too bad this morning. I left, I left bright and early because I thought, you, know, you just never know getting here. But uh, it was really slow driving, though. Yes. But got here safe and sound, which is great. That's what matters. That's what matters. And um, I want to do a quick shout out because part of my day encompassed putting on brand new warm socks to keep my feet warm and they were given to me by a regular listener mrs amaral so i really do appreciate them it's uh the timing was impeccable they are um on my feet now and it's a little you know it's a little chilly outside being damp and everything but these are beautiful socks and they're handmade and i really do do appreciate it what a wonderful wonderful gesture it was by her so thank you very much mrs amaral i appreciate it um, we are live today. Our number is 416-245-1534. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Health Hub RMC. And please do feel free to email us at, at thh at radiomaria.ca. We are still taking questions uh, for our show today. If you have any, do feel free to uh, tweet them to us or email them to us. Best if you can tweet them in because uh, email's a little bit... Uh, tough to get to at this point, but uh, do send them in. And please subscribe to our podcast. As you know, all of our shows are turned over into a podcast format and you can find them on the health, you can find the health hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all of your uh, favorite podcast platforms. You can also find the podcast on the Radio Maria website, which is www.radiomaria.ca and on my website, kathybiasse.com. The second show of our two-part series on Alzheimer's and dementia with Dr. Kenneth Rockwood is up. Can dementia be delayed or prevented? It's up for you to listen to. And this is the, this has been garnering um, a lot of attention because the, the two, the two-part series, the first show was with uh, Dr. Griffin on the breakthrough research and early detection and treatment of Alzheimer's. So we covered a broad span in the two shows, which was uh, very much our intention, more the scientific research angle, and then last week's show um, on some practical ways to delay or in, in hopeful cases to, to prevent dementia. So there is something for everybody to listen to in that series, and uh, I do suggest it is applicable to everybody, and that's what we really try and do here on the Health Hub. Our shows are applicable to, to you, whether it's um, information that you can use personally or pass on to other people. So very happy with the response to this show. So, so do take a listen. Um, when I work with clients on their nutrition profile, the topic of gluten 
usually pops up. It's, it's, uh, we hear a lot of gluten-free restaurants, gluten-free bread, gluten-free food. So, uh, we talk about it. Um, I'm not going to get into opinions and so forth, but we'll talk about the yes or the no when it comes to gluten, what foods it's contained in, my opinions and so forth. And then uh, I asked them if they actually know what gluten, in fact, is. And more times than not, the answer is no. So I want to let you know what gluten is. So you just have a bit more of that information in your toolbox when you're trying to make decisions for yourself. Gluten is really what gives dough that elastic, gluey-like texture when it cooks. It gives us that uh, really happy taste in our mouth, a bit of chewiness. So that's what gluten does. Uh, Gluten is a family of proteins, and it's found in grains like wheat, rye, spelt, and barley. I think probably the most common grain that we eat is wheat, so that's... um, that's one thing that people are, are very aware of, and I often hear them when they come in to see me. The first thing that they've told me is they've cut out wheat. But the two main proteins in gluten are glutenin and gliadin. And of the two, gliadin is responsible for most of the negative health effects that people incur. Now, the most readily known disease associated with gluten intolerance is celiac disease. And celiac disease is an autoimmune disease. We've had uh, conversations about what autoimmune disease are before, but just, just to go over it a little bit. When you have an autoimmune disease, your immune system attacks something in your body and it attacks self. So in the case of celiac, the immune system is attacking gluten as well as the lining of the gut. And the result can be, for people who suffer with celiac disease, nutrient deficiencies and very severe digestive issues. And it can lead to uh, increased risks of other diseases. So I just wanted to um, put that out there for you because very recently I had someone come into the clinic and we had a long conversation about gluten and and their opinions of it. And um, they were actually surprised to know that it was a protein. So there you go. Hopefully that helps you out a little bit. We have a wonderful guest on the show today. We are talking about what to feed your baby and toddler. And this is with Dr. Nicole Avina. Dr. Navina is a research neuroscientist and an expert in the field of nutrition, diet, and addiction. She is a pioneer in the field of food addiction, and it was her seminal research work that jump-started this exciting new field of exploration in medicine and nutrition. She is also an expert in diet during pregnancy and childhood nutrition. And Dr. Vina has blogs on Psychology Today and the Huffington Post. And she regularly appears on television shows, including the Hallmark Channel, the Dr. Oz Show, The Doctors, and Good Day New York. Her new book, What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler, covers nutrition for babies who are just beginning to eat and offers science-based advice and practical tips on how to get your baby to eat healthy food. She is also the author of What to Eat When You're Pregnant and co-author of Why Diets Fail. Our topic uh, of topics, our learning points today, let's say, are does mom's diet during pregnancy set the stage for infant development? Does brain development affect our food choices? And what can parents do to ensure their kids are eating healthy diets? So all these will be uh, rolled out to you today in our learning points, as well as the questions that we have sent in to us. So please stay tuned, and we will return in a few minutes. Praise to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our God and our King, to 
are the children we've been redeemed We've been forgiven We are the sons and daughters of our God We are the saints We are the children we've been redeemed We've been forgiven We are the sons and daughters of our God Listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Our show is live today. If you'd like to call in, our number is 416-245-1534. And our social sites, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook are at the Health Hub RMC. Good morning, Dr. Avina. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. I'm doing well. How's the weather in your area? Well, it's a little bit cloudy, but I'm hoping the sun will come out so we can get a little bit more time on the beach before <laughs> the summer comes down to an end. Uh, it comes around to an end so quickly. It's been a lovely summer here. That's good. Yeah, we've had. I'm in the New York area, and we've had you know a pretty pleasant summer. It hasn't been too too hot, so it's been it's been really nice. Awesome, awesome. So let's get into you and what you do and the awesome information that you're disseminating to everybody. How did you get started in this field of neuroscience? Well, that's a, a good question. It, I kind of stumbled into it. Um, so back when I was uh, trying to decide what I wanted to do for a career and with the rest of my life, I was in college and kind of got interested in doing some research in a lab because I was interested in psychology and I was interested in how the brain worked. And so I started working in a research lab that was studying brain mechanisms that actually regulated behaviors that were associated with motivated behaviors. And so, you know, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we choose to exercise? Why do we choose to eat certain foods and things like that? And I just kind of got hooked and it really got me interested in sort of pursuing that a little bit more. And so I decided to go to graduate school And when I was doing my PhD at Princeton University, I started working with a professor there who was doing research on how the foods that we eat might be influenced by brain mechanisms and vice versa. And so that's how I kind of got interested in, you know, understanding this sort of brain food connection. And I think it's really fascinating because so much of what I think we think about when we talk about eating behavior 
people don't necessarily think that the brain has a lot to do with it. I mean, we all know that the brain plays a role in, you know, our eating behavior, but I think there's a lot more to it. And we're learning a lot more about the research behind it now than previously known. And so a lot of the, you know, choices that we make about what we eat aren't always necessarily, you know, things that have to do with willpower. A lot of it is really dictated by our biology and how our brain is influencing the way in which we make those decisions. I, I, you know, I definitely want to do a focus. We're talking about uh, infant and childhood nutrition, but I was uh, looking at your website, I think it was, or I, I stumbled upon something that I found very interesting. And I think, you know, it's important to know when we're talking about children, when we're talking about ourselves, but there was a point, you know, we talk about fructose and, and people know that it's damaging to the liver and, 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 you know, that's a very common um common sugar, so to speak, and table mm-hmm. sugar. And we, we kind of are getting the sense that sugar is not great. So I think that's, that's, we've laid the foundation nicely for that. But you said something in one of your interviews, and forgive me, I'm not sure which one it was, that it may not be the actual fructose. It may not be the actual, you know, chemical makeup. That actually you're finding that it's the, the taste that may be the issue? Yeah, that's true. So, you're totally right about the research on sugar and how it can have effects not only on the brain in terms of promoting addictive-like behavior, which is what our lab has been focusing a lot on, but there's also new research that's coming out that's suggesting that too much sugar in the form of, like you said, fructose from high fructose corn syrup especially can have effects on the liver and other organ systems that over time can be associated with things like metabolic syndrome and all these other disorders and diseases that we're starting to learn more and more about. But you raise a good point about how this is something that um, isn't necessarily just from the actual molecule of sugar, but we're actually finding that it has more to do with the taste. And so we've done some experiments in our laboratory where we've looked at just different types of sugars and also just the taste of sugar. So simply just having it be, you know, the taste of it on your tongue. And so what's been discovered is that even just the taste of the sugar can produce these brain changes that are associated with overeating-like behaviors and addictive-like behaviors. And so we've found that even artificial sweeteners can release dopamine in the brain in areas of a brain that are associated with reward and reinforcement. And those are the same types of things that happen when, you know, somebody becomes addicted to a drug of abuse, it releases dopamine in these brain regions. And so what's really, I think, unique about consuming sugar is that not only do we get this sort of release of dopamine that's associated with reward and pleasure just from tasting it, but then once you digest it and ingest it, it, it produces additional changes in the body and in the brain that promote us to want to eat it and you know make us sometimes want to overeat it. So that's something that comes up a lot because people will often say to me, well, oh, okay, I'm going to cut out sugar. I'm just going to go ahead and eat stevia or I'll have some other non-nutritive sweetener, artificial sweetener, and that'll solve all my problems. And the truth is, it it really doesn't because in terms of how it affects the brain, it's really the sweetness that seems to be producing these changes in the brain and these sort of like compulsive eating behaviors, not necessarily the type of sugar that you're consuming. That's an incredibly important point because uh, you've, I, I did not know that. It was my looking um, to you and doing some research that I found that out because, you know, in dealing with cancer patients, 
So I can't now say really that stevia is fine because it really doesn't spike your blood sugar or xylitol doesn't spike your blood sugar, but it is still doing other things that can be detrimental. So a really, really important point, and I know it's a bit off topic from what we want to talk about, but I just, that, that really resonated with me and I wanted you to get that out there to everybody. So, yeah, it is a good point. No, I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that comes up a lot and people tend to, you know, think that sometimes these artificial or non-caloric sweeteners are the answer to everything. And there's a place for them in our diets, but I don't necessarily think that, you know, people should feel like you have the green light to consume as much as you like of them just because they have zero calories or they're from nature or, you know, they're marketed in such a way. So mm-hmm. that's a good point to bring up. It is very important. So when did you first get the insight to the importance of diet on the development of children? Well, that's an interesting story, too. So for many years, we were studying the effects of diet on the brain and really kind of focusing sort of on adults, if you will, and really just sort of what happens if, you know, someone were to overeat sugar um, and how does that affect the brain and overeat other types of foods and how does that affect the brain. And so a lot of the work was really sort of focused on, you know, what happens in adults. Um, And then I myself was at the point in my life where I started having babies and I, you know, got naturally interested in understanding, well, you know, there's so much about development that happens in utero and, you know, the brain is forming in this very small period of time. We have a a thousand day period of life from conception through age two, where all of this wonderful development is happening and all of these brain systems are forming and pruning and developing themselves. And, you know, to me, it just seemed like, wow, this is really the place to be looking in terms of, you know, what effect does food have on that development? And how is it what a mother might be eating while she's pregnant? How can that affect the brain development of the of the growing baby? And, you know, to the next extent, you know, when a baby starts eating on their own or after they're born and they're done nursing or having formula in that first year of life, what about the foods that are introduced to a baby when they start eating solids? So that's really how I got interested in and looking at this, um, it was more, you know, sort of inspired by personal experience of, you know, seeing myself be pregnant and seeing, you know, my babies growing. But then also, just from a research standpoint, it seemed like we were at the point where it'd be good to look at the genesis of food addiction. So if we could understand what is happening in utero that could potentially be promoting babies to then want to overeat later on or to have problems with their body weight later on? Could there be something that's happening, you know, that's being introduced before the baby even starts to eat that could be responsible for this? And so that's really where the research came from. So does mom's diet during pregnancy set the stage for uh, a child's brain development for, for future eating patterns? It does. And, you know, there's actually been research on this topic for quite some time. So we've known for many, many years that the environment that the baby is reared in, right, so the prenatal environment, if you will, to have a long-term impact on how the baby develops. And so we've known, for instance, like if a mother was born or, excuse me, if a baby was born addicted to drugs, so if a mother consumes drugs, during a pregnancy, then the baby is born addicted to those drugs and, you know, will be dependent on them. We've also known from years of historical research that women who um, were subjected to famines, for instance, um, there was a a famine, I don't know if you've heard of the Dutch winter famine, it was um, back in the 1940s during the war, 
there were parts of Europe where there was um, not a lot of access to food. And so the historical records suggest that women who were pregnant during that time actually gave birth to male babies that later on grew up to actually become overweight and obese. And it was really interesting. And studies had been done subsequent to that that confirmed the mechanism of it. And it was essentially because the babies were born in a situation where they were in a famine. And so the brains were wired to think that they were always in a famine. They were always hungry. And so that translated into the way that the brain developed to make the baby then want to eat more and have a a stronger appetite than normal. So we know that the environment in which the baby is sort of reared in, in this developmental period during pregnancy, especially, can have an effect on food choices later on. And we've been doing research over the past several years that have kind of looked at the role of, I guess, sort of our more modern food environment, right? So fortunately, we're in the case where most of us aren't in a famine, but we're actually in a food abundance. And so it's the case that we have lots of highly processed foods, high fat foods, high sugar foods. And, you know, many of these foods are regularly consumed by everyone, especially pregnant women. I can speak from experience or something that, you know, are around and that people tend to eat. And so we've been doing research, trying to understand, well, what happens if these types of high sugar foods are overconsumed in pregnancy and what are the sort of long-term impacts that it can have on the offspring? And our lab and other labs have shown that, indeed, if uh, you're exposed to excess amounts of these high-fat, high-sugar foods during pregnancy, it can have effects on the brain in terms of DNA methylation, the structure of the reward system in terms of how the neurotransmitters are functioning. And basically the end result is that it has an effect on food preference later on, and it can have an effect on body weight later on. And so even if you've never been exposed to these foods yourself, if they were consumed by your mother while she was pregnant in excess, it can have an effect on your brain development and then cause a behavioral changes later on that would be associated with maybe overeating, and that could be associated with obesity. Now, is there is this set in stone, these uh, neural connections, if, you know, a, a mother who didn't realize um, or was in a situation, you know, things things are different when you're having your baby, you know, when you're pregnant, and, and, and you know, we're talking about young women uh, a lot of times, and, and as you know, uh, when you're younger, the, the health picture may not be as forefront in your in your mind. Is there a way that these neural connections can be changed or is this a hard wire and we're done? Right. No, it, it certainly can be changed. And I think that, you know, the challenge is that it just makes it a little bit more difficult. And so, you know, the issue that we face is that in our modern food environment, we're sort of plagued with all these advertisements and all access to these, you know, highly palatable foods. And it's hard to resist sometimes. And so people who, you know, maybe are born in a situation where they were heavily exposed to these things in utero might find it even harder to resist and might find it even harder to, you know, curtail the cravings that they might have and to, you know, not give in to eating these foods in excess. And so I certainly don't think it means that anything is set in stone. Everyone's behavior can be changed. It just may be more difficult for some individuals who have this sort of genetic predisposition based off of the way that, you know, they were reared in their prenatal environment. Okay. 
Now, um, we got a couple of minutes before break, so I guess what, what I, I knew that our conversation would be very interesting like this. So I think that what I want, would like to do is take the second part and talk about the introductions of foods and so forth and, and your recommendations and uh, focus in on your book. But what um, I think maybe we'll end off in the next couple of minutes is uh, with the question is, why is the breast best for uh, newborn babies? Yeah, so there's a lot of research that is suggesting that for many years that breastfeeding has so many advantages, not only for the baby, but also for the mom. And so breastfeeding has been associated with reduced risk for certain types of cancers for women. It's also a great way to bond with the baby. Um, There's also lots of benefits to breast milk in terms of allowing the baby to get exposed to different antigens that can help boost their immunity. And so breastfeeding is certainly an important part of, you know, the relationship and also in helping baby to get off on the right foot. But I do think it's important to note that there's a lot of pressure on women these days to breastfeed. Um, And it's sort of been cyclical. And it's interesting when I sort of talk to my mother about, you know, the environment in which it was like when she was having her babies, breastfeeding wasn't as much encouraged. It's not that people didn't, you know, tell women to breastfeed, but it was more acceptable for women to formula feed and to give a baby formula. And, you know, I even noticed about 10 years ago when I had my first daughter, there wasn't quite as much pressure to breastfeed. Nowadays, I I just had another baby who's just two, and I see that there's definitely a tone that is suggesting that, you know, there's a lot of guilt put on women and and women are made to feel very, very encouraged to breastfeed. Um, And I think it's just important to point out that there's lots of reasons why women may or may not breastfeed. And if women don't breastfeed, then that's fine too. As long as you're feeding your baby formula, taking care of your baby and loving your baby, that's going to that's going to be what you need to do. But certainly if breastfeeding is something that you can do and want to do, it does have a lot of health benefits for not only the mother, but also for the baby as well. So it's certainly worth um, looking into and planning to do if you can. And how long would you suggest if you are going to breastfeed your baby, how long would you suggest to do this for? Right. So the guidelines suggest that babies, you know, be breastfed for up to 12 months, if not longer. And so in terms of the health benefits, the studies kind of are are a little bit um, unclear in terms of at what point you're going to have optimal effects. My advice to women is to do it as long as you can. Do it as long as it works for you and as long as it's something that, you know, is working for your family. Um, And it really sort of depends on the situation. A lot of times if women are returning to work, for instance, um, it becomes a little bit more difficult to continue breastfeeding. A lot of women, you know, will use a breast pump so that they can pump milk and then store it. Um, and so that there's certainly lots of tools and options out there for women to continue to breastfeed. But I think it really comes down to a matter of personal choice and what works best. But, I mean, even if it's just for two weeks, <laughs> I mean, try to do it a, a little bit. If, and that way, I think any breast milk that the baby can get will be a benefit. Perfect. And we're going to go to break here. And when we get back, we're really going to take a, a deep dive into what to feed your, your baby and toddler. We'll be right back.
voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're here talking with Dr. Nicole Avina, uh, author of the book, What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler, and great conversation going on. So please, again, throw your questions at us. I am putting them out as we get them. Um, Dr. uh, Avina, could you tell us, let's start from stem to stern. Uh, When would you start introducing foods for your baby after you've bottle fed or breastfed? Yeah, that's a great question. So, and this is something that, you know, there's often new studies that are coming out that I think can kind of be a little bit confusing to people. So I want to really spend a few minutes going over this. So right now the guidelines suggest that if you have a healthy baby with no food allergies that are known and no siblings that have food allergies, 
the best bet is to wait until the baby is six months of age to start giving solid foods. And the reason why it's important to wait is because it's often the case that even if you have like a large baby who maybe is, you know, one of those babies that is on like the 99% scale and, you know, looks like they're ready to eat and seems like they're interested in it, it could be that their gut hasn't actually fully developed to be able to handle solid foods. So even though, you know, baby might seem like they're ready and you might be excited and eager to feed baby, you want to try to wait because if you start to introduce solids too soon, it can really cause digestive problems for the baby and it can make the feeding experience uncomfortable for you and also for the baby. And so we want it to be a positive experience and a happy time, not something that's going to be stressful and make baby gassy and not feel well. So I often suggest that, and this is what the guidelines suggest, for lots of different organizations in terms of medicine and pediatrics to wait until six months. And you want to make sure that you're keeping in mind that all the nutrition that the baby needs is actually coming from your breast milk or from baby formula for the first year of life. So the foods that you introduce to baby at six months, the baby isn't really reliant on them for nutrition. It knows early couple months when baby first starts eating solids, they're still getting formula, they're still getting breast milk, and all the nutrition they need is coming from that. So it's really a period where you can introduce foods for fun and for, you know, getting baby used to eating healthy foods and trying out different textures and, and different flavors. Can I just ask a question here? Is it the physiology of the gut that's not ready yet for her, uh, solid foods? It's that, and it's also just the whole microbiome. Um, you know, again, we have to keep in mind that even though our babies are developing outwardly and maybe are expressing all these different, you know, emotions and different, you know, behavioral abilities, it doesn't necessarily mean that the physiology is keeping up with that. And so a lot of times parents will talk about how, you know, the baby starts to perhaps sleep all through the night, which is a wonderful thing for any new parent. And then suddenly, maybe around four or five months of age, the baby starts waking up in the middle of the night. And a lot of parents think, oh, my goodness, well, maybe the baby is hungry. That's why they're waking up. So I should start feeding them. And that's actually probably not the case. Most likely, the reason why babies start to wake up around four to five months of age is something called a sleep regression. And this is because we as adults tend to have periods of sleep where we have, we cycle throughout the night through deep sleep and light sleep. So we'll have periods where we're in a very deep sleep and it's going to be very hard to rouse us, right? So, you know, if somebody were to shake you or, you know, touch you, you might not even feel it. But we also have periods of light sleep where, you know, just by, you know, having a light come on, it'll make us wake up. And so we tend to rotate through those types of sleep patterns throughout the night as adults. And what's happening around four to five months of age is that the baby is starting to do that as well. And so instead of having more periods of deep sleep, they're having those light sleep phases where they're more easily awoken happen. And so things like, you know, itchy pajama or the air conditioner coming on or just like hearing a noise downstairs, those are things that could wake the baby up. And so it's not typically the fact that the baby's hungry. It's usually something else. But parents often think, well, let's try to feed the baby. Maybe they're hungry and that can help. And it actually could backfire because if their digestive system isn't prepared for it, it's going to make the baby have a hard time digesting the food and that's going to lead to additional problems. 
Fair enough. Okay, so now I, you know, I had four children. Um, consistent though, my doctor did tell me not to feed the baby uh, until six months. So that was that's good to know. But there were a lot of myths going around, and you know, my friend would feed the baby everything. I fed the baby in a certain order of food. Can you? talk to us about I'm sure that they're still circulating now I've been out of the baby industry for a few years so what are the mm-hmm. common myths about introducing foods to your baby and what do you uh, can you tell us what research is saying about this yeah so I think that you know this is something that I feel like it's been around forever and it's going to always be around there's always going to be these sort of myths and kind of sort of things that work for some moms and or dads that they try and so they sort of pass it on to their friends and family and these things kind of just circulate out there. But, you know, now people are doing research on this to try to understand what is the optimal way to feed your baby? What, you know, what can we do to sort of harness the power of good food and make sure that the food that the baby is exposed to early in life are the best ones? And is there some sort of, you know, special order in which we should be introducing foods? I think that, you know, one, I wouldn't call it a myth, but I would, I would call it more of a trend that's emerged is something that's been called baby-led weaning. And uh, this is um, a technique that a lot of parents adopt, and I, I think there's certainly a place for it, where instead of preparing baby food, you essentially, you know, use whatever food that you're eating and just give very small bits of it to the baby. And so it's sort of like, you know, avoiding all the purees and, you know, big buying jars of baby food and you essentially just have the baby eat what you're eating, but just in smaller amounts that they can handle or smaller sizes and pieces. And this has become something that, you know, has become very popular. A lot of people ask questions about, and I think it can be a very good thing for an older baby. I don't think it's a good idea for a very young baby. And the reason is because we as adults tend to eat foods that, you know, have salts in them. You know, for instance, if you think about like pasta sauce, for instance, so if you're having, you know, spaghetti with pasta sauce, that can have a lot of additives in it. It might have a lot of salt in it. And babies' kidneys can't handle things like that. And so the issue is really that a lot of the adultish foods that we tend to eat or even foods that we serve to maybe our older children might not be things that a young baby who's just starting out eating can handle. And so I really think that for those first couple of months when you're starting to feed the baby, it is best to really, you know, have the baby's own version of whatever you're eating. So this doesn't mean you have to necessarily, you know, prepare a whole entire different meal for the baby than what you're serving your family. But I do think people need to take care to make sure that, you know, if they're giving their baby, you know, things that they're consuming and pureeing it up or, you know, giving it to the baby in that way, that they want to make sure it doesn't have a lot of those additives, salts, added sugars, and things that we wouldn't really want baby to have to begin with. So I really think that that's something that's, um, like I said, is not a myth. It's just more of a, a common practice that we're starting to hear more about. So in dealing with the babies, you've, you've uh, set that stage. At what point, or is there a point, that uh, mom and dad need to key in on macronutrients and different macronutrients that need to be in a child or toddler's diet. And does that ratio change throughout childhood, infancy, and toddler and the toddler? Yeah, that's a great question. So really those first, like I said, the first six months that the baby's eating. So if you start feeding the baby at six months and then look, you know, through the first year of life, it's really about getting the baby 
interested in trying food, having healthy foods. I advocate people not really focus on making sure baby's getting enough fats or sugars or not, excuse me, carbohydrates or proteins. Because again, like I said earlier, this time period is really just about getting baby excited about the food. All the nutrition that they need is not, is going to be coming from the formula or from the breast milk. And so I suggest starting off with vegetables. Um, and one of the things that, you know, we tend to see is if you go to the grocery store and look at commercially available baby foods is that a lot of them are blends. And so they might be a blend of like, you know, peas, carrots, and apples. And they often tend to have vegetables in them that also have a lot of fruit in them. And that's a good thing because, you know, it makes baby want to eat it because the fruit is nice and sweet and, you know, baby likes a sweet taste. They're naturally programmed to like sweetness. But I think it's important for baby to experience the taste of peas all by themselves. And even, you know, things like when they're old enough and ready, you know, pureed spinach all by themselves. Because if we rely on the commercially available baby foods that oversweeten the foods, then baby really never develops the taste for, you know, a pure vegetable that isn't going to taste sweet. And what happens over time is that, you know, they tend to want to go for the sweeter foods and not really be keen on consuming the vegetables. And so I suggest that really in the beginning, you know, try to focus on, you know, pushing the vegetables. And certainly there's a place for fruit, but I tend to use fruit as more of a dessert. And so, you know, after dinner, after the baby's finished, whatever I prepare, then maybe, you know, they can have a little bit of a fruit as a dessert. So as a sweet treat. How do we cultivate good habits with kids? And, uh, you know, I, I call to mind um, my oldest son. So of course I'm, I, I hope I learned as I got down to the fourth, but he was uh, on the go all the time. And I, I still see him with the tea towel wrapped around his neck, flying around the room and he would not sit to eat. And I remember, you know, when I, when he had a, a slow motion pass by, I would put food into his mouth. And it drove my mom insane. So, you know, <laughs> you know, it was hers was he needs to sit at the table, learn habits, you know, take the time to eat. And what I know now and looking back then, I think she was probably more right than wrong. But how do we cultivate eating habits with kids, proper eating habits that, um, you know, that will aid digestion, that will help them discern likes and dislikes of food and so forth? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, this is something that a lot of parents struggle with. And I can speak from my personal experience, too, on this. I think a lot of it has to do with the personality of your child. And so some children are just going to be naturally um, better behaved and be more interested in eating, right? And so they're going to be willing to sit at the table and they're going to be willing to, you know, slowly chew their food, whereas other children are going to be like your son and my young daughter who, you know, would rather run around the house and have you chase them with a spoon to try to get some food in their mouth. So I, I think that the best approach is to really, you know, look at it from a safety standpoint. And this is what I have done with my children, and what I suggest others do. You don't want to do something like where you're feeding the baby while they're running around because it, it is a choking hazard. Um, and so especially when baby gets a little bit older and, you know, the, the pieces of food are, are of a different texture, it could be a choking hazard. So 
I think it's important to just from the get go, really just try to establish a good routine where, you know, maybe the baby, if they're not so keen on sitting still, they have a special toy that they play with at the table or they have a special plate or they have their own special placemat, something that is very unique that they only get when it's time to eat and that they're going to get excited about that will help them stay in place so that they can learn to sit at the table and then be able to, you know, develop those good feeding habits. Because I really do think that if we can start these types of behaviors early on in terms of getting, you know, good manners and, you know, getting them to sit at the table, it's going to make it easier as they get older um, because it'll just be sort of second nature and they'll be ingrained in it. But I do think that, you know, having a couple of tricks up your sleeve to kind of, especially if you have a, a very active toddler, to get them to sit still um, by having things that are unique to the meal that they will only get if they sit at the table. That's been a trick that I, I know a lot of parents have used that has, has worked well. I my my two sons. I have four kids. The two sons are, are different ends of the spectrum. My younger son, he saw food, and that was it. That's all he needed was to see the food. When my older son, we had picnics. I mean, it got to the point where I had to lay a, a blanket on the floor, and we'd sit down and have a picnic about Peter Pan, and and that's that's it was he was he was really difficult. But I wanted to talk to, uh, I know it comes up quite a bit. Uh, well, actually, I'll get to this in a second. You said chewing, and I honed in on the chewing. I think that's an important thing that parents need to start from the get-go to tell their kids to chew their food. Is that something that you agree with or not so important? Oh, I think it's very important. And uh, you know, like I said, I have a two-year-old, and it comes out of the words chew, chew, sit down and chew, <laughs> come out of my mouth many, many times each day. Um in part, it's because of it's a choking hazard, right? I mean, if, you know, babies don't know what are the appropriate size bites to take. It's something that they need to be taught. And just like with everything else, some kids pick up on, you know, what they're supposed to do rather quickly, and others need a little bit more time to coach them through what's an appropriate size bite, how much do you need to chew it in order for it to be okay to swallow. We, we sometimes take these things for granted and think, you know, oh, the baby's just going to know how much to eat. But some kids really do struggle with this and, and do need to get, you know, monitored and need extra help to really kind of get them through that. Um, and again, like I said, it really comes from a place of safety because there are many kids that will just take a very large amount of food and stuff it in their mouth. And that, that can be a problem. And no parent ever wants to have to, you know, deal with a choking child. Um, and so I do think that things like chewing and appropriate size bites um, are things that, you know, many parents need to just do to, to demonstrate to their kids. One thing I suggest, if you have older children, they can be an excellent tool for you to use because a lot of times, you know, when mom or dad demonstrates something, the baby's not interested. But if their older brother or sister who they idolize will show them how to do it, that can really help to reinforce the message. So if you have older children in your home, I think that, that you should use them to help to try to, you know, demonstrate appropriate size bites, appropriate, you know, ways to chew. And then if you don't, you, when you go to parties or if you have cousins or, you know, you're around older kids, you know, older kids are always happy to help and play with little ones. And so if you can have them be a model for you at that point um, to help the baby understand good manners and, you know, things like that around the table, it can it can really be a good thing. Perfect. Now, I knew we'd be bumping up against the clock here, but uh, the question that has come in, I, I've got to say six times, and maybe you can address is the topic of healthy snacks. That's a tough one for many parents, especially when they're sending their young ones to daycare or 
you know, the beginnings of, of kindergarten. Can you give us some suggestions on some healthy snacks for kids? Yeah, it's a question that comes up a lot. And, you know, again, it, it does become a struggle because we're talking about, you know, you need something that's portable, that's not going to spoil, um, that doesn't need to be refrigerated often. And so a lot of times people have to default to, you know, processed foods. And, you know, we try to avoid that as much as we can. I, I really think it, it comes down to working with your child to identify what kinds of snacks they like. Um, and then, you know, they're going to be exposed to, you know, the potato chips and the sweets and the ice creams and things like that at parties and at school events. And those are things that inevitably are going to come up. So when it comes to sort of the regular everyday snack, I tend to look at that as an extension of the meal. And so I think it's best that you try to come up with like, you know, a fruit and vegetable based snack for your kids and something that they can, you know, have with them at daycare, have with them at school that is going to be healthy because they're going to get those other junk food type snacks from other sources that aren't going to be coming from you. So I always advocate to parents, you know, whatever snack you provide, have it be as healthy as possible. So um, for little ones who are maybe toddlers, hummus can be a really good snack, especially they sell it in sort of like individual sized portions and kids like to dip things. And so, if you can do like crackers with hummus, that's a good thing um, for a, a to- an older toddler. Um, but I really think that the key is to try to avoid providing your child with the unhealthy snacks and really just sort of opt for the, the healthier ones. Even if your child sometimes balks at it, it's really, you know, the best bet because like I said, they're going to get introduced to, you know, the sweet treats and the sort of more processed snacks just via, you know, being out there in the environment and other people and going to play dates and things like that. Yeah, it's tough for parents. It really is. It's a tough one. Uh, I know we didn't even get into some of the hallmark of your research, which is sugar addiction and obesity, but you are having an event here in Toronto, uh, Sunday, September 16th. Um, Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So I will be visiting Toronto. I'm very much looking forward to it. It's been a few years since I've been there. And on September 16th, I will be speaking at an event that is being hosted by Renaissance. And I believe you said that you're going to post the um, the flyer with the information so people can yes, learn all about it or yep. they could go to my website. There's information on that as well. Um, and it's going to be a great event. I'm going to be speaking and also another um, researcher from the United States, uh, Dr. Robert Lustig, he'll also be speaking. He does a lot of, of work on, on sugar as well. And so it's going to be a great event and um, it's open to the public and it'll be a great way to, to learn about the new research on sugar and addiction and what excess sugar can do to your body and your brain. Yes, we will be posting that up uh, on our social media, so Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Also speaking at that event is Dr. Vera Tarman, if I'm not mistaken. She has a past guest on our show. Um, we had a wonderful show with her as well. Yes, and she's also one of the co-organizers, and she will also be speaking, and she's lovely and wonderful. So it'll be a really great event with lots of um, interesting perspectives from different researchers who are all focused on this whole issue of excess sugar in our diets. Wonderful. I would love to have been there, but I am away um, at that time. So unfortunately, 
Uh, I can't be there, but uh, definitely a great event to go to, and we will be publicizing it. Now, your your book can be found, uh, What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler, as, as well as your other books, I'm assuming, on Amazon. Uh, you can also find out more about Dr. Avina on her website, which is Nicole at drnicoleavina.com. Um, no, that's your email address, correct? Yeah, and, and that, that makes more sense. And your website is drnicolavina.com. We'll be putting all of that up there for you. Um, it's been on all the social media sites as well. So, so do take a look. Wonderful, wonderful woman doing some wonderful work with children in the research uh, on sugar and sugar addiction. I'd like to thank you for being on our show today, Dr. Vina, and taking time out of your schedule. It's uh, a really an honor for us to have you. And everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.